Hi, it's Nick Jana time. Time to take all your old Nick Janas out of the garage and clean them up. As usual, I am reading from my book, which is entitled Get It While You Can. Chapter 12. I've always been drawn to the places that scare me the most. The parts of the map where the lines trail off and serpents fill the rest of the page. I like to imagine the map makers shrugging and saying, well, we're not sure what's over this hill. Probably serpents. I'm interested in the kind of city that is not on a map. Maps can only document what has already been seen and I've always wanted to go somewhere that has never been seen. I created an entire New Orleans in my mind before I ever went there. In some ways it was a naive construction, but I miss that imaginary city. I first went to New Orleans because of a dream, but it was someone else's dream. It was 1997 and I was biking around Ireland, listening to a cassette of Paul Simon's musical, The Cape Man. I decided I wanted to write my own musical when I got back to California. I knew how to write songs, but I'd never written a story before. One evening, I sat with my guitar in my parents' living room and started strumming chords and singing nonsense words. The first line that came out was, I die, they won't even bury me. What the hell does that mean, I thought. What person would be so pathetic that he wouldn't even be buried? I was about to move on to something else when my friend David called. He's a screenwriter who looks kind of like Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. He is intense and steeped in story. What are you doing, he asked. Oh, just trying to start this musical, I said. If I were talking to anyone else, I probably wouldn't have said more. I'm trying to think of a story, I said. All I have so far is this one line, but it's nothing. What is it, he asked. I don't even know what it means, I told him. Oh, when I die, they won't even bury me. There was a pause. That's funny, David said. Then another pause. I just read something about how in New Orleans, they don't bury bodies in the ground because the water table's so high that they'll just seep back up to the surface, he said. And it's weird because, even though I've never been there, I had a dream about New Orleans last night. I was watching a funeral parade through the streets with a big crowd, and when it got dark, the coffin lid popped open and the body inside jumped out and ran away, and everyone chased after it. He paused again. I didn't even realize it until just now, but the person that jumped out of the coffin was you. Mm. 
So there I had in one dream my directive for the next year, write and record a musical that led up to that climactic image and then find a way to New Orleans. I stayed up every night working on it and slept during the day. I would head to the university library in the hours before closing to look at travel books about the city. I put into New Orleans all my hopes for what I was missing from my own life. New loves are always the receptacles for all those impossible wishes. Maybe you're tracking the scent of sweet jasmine, or you only feel alive in places with heat lightning and Spanish moss. All of us are following some trail. I made a song out of Jacques Prévert's Chanson des Escargots qui vont à l'entraînement, a poem in which two snails go to a dead leaf's funeral. They start out in the autumn, and because they're so slow, they don't get there until the spring. By that time, everything is alive again, so they drink beer and sing songs and stumble home happy. How French to think that if you take it slow enough, everything will get better. Eventually, I met a girl heading to New Orleans who let me ride along in her van. I had studied French poetry because I knew there was a profound French influence in the city. But upon arrival, I realized that in New Orleans, they pronounce beautiful French words like they're slamming the door on a souffle. Actual French people must be garroted to see their delicate language so mispronounced. Every time I'm away for a while, the dream New Orleans swirls back into my memory, and when I go to the real New Orleans, there is a swift end to that dream when I am faced with the savage truth of the city. What I always forget is that the reason New Orleans is so committed to letting the good times roll is because it lives so closely with death. One time I came back to town to see photocopied missing signs posted on telephone poles. On them the face of a young father who was last seen waiting in the Mississippi. After a couple weeks, the signs were bleached from the sun and peeling off. His body never surfaced. Another time, just a few months after Katrina, my friend Gil told me how several days earlier he'd ordered a pizza and chatted with the delivery guy for a few minutes. The next day, the delivery guy jumped off the top floor of the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel. When the police entered his home, they found that he'd chopped his girlfriend up and put her in pots on the stove. I try to turn away from such stories, but they are there in New Orleans more than they are in most places. That is what gives New Orleans such life. Sit in just about any bar and write on a napkin things you overhear, and you'll already have the beginnings of a song. If that doesn't work, I'll just go back to LA and make the same damn film everyone else makes. We used to flirt with each other backstage at Camelot, and when we'd leg wrestle, I'd notice the weird homemade patches on her jeans. Ride your bicycle through Marigny in the French Quarter, weaving your way through delivery trucks and tourists. You will see at least one person dressed like he or she is crazy who will be making a lot of money, and many people dressed like they make a lot of money who will be acting crazy. It is a place where you can pretend the consequences don't exist, like that magical time when you were young and you got on the carousel with your brother while your mom waited on the side. You spun around knowing that someone was holding your back for you, holding your place in the real world. 
as Charles Broom said to me once during a funeral parade on Frenchman Street. Time in New Orleans is more crooked than Einstein could have ever dreamed. Find the coffee shop near the central business district, where the concrete floor slopes subtly upward, making it so... And this is such a New Orleans thing. The door doesn't open easily because it scrapes against the ground. Don't fuss with it, because there's nothing that can be done. It's just an inherently difficult door to open. Sit there for an hour watching different people approach the door and push on it and then do that thing where they think something is wrong or they're being tricked until they remember that it's New Orleans and they just resume pushing it while looking slightly embarrassed. Sit there until a woman walks in inexplicably holding a couch pillow. She will have trouble opening the door and look over at you bemusedly until she finally succeeds. She'll spend only about 30 seconds looking around the coffee shop before wrestling with the door on her way out. She'll manage it with Buster Keaton-like humor and look at you through the window with a knowing smile as she starts to walk away. If you're lucky, she'll stop walking and come back, push the door open again just so she can remind you. Nothing's easy, is it? I'm on the phone with my friend David. He's in L.A. Hi, David. Hi. Hi. Thanks for joining me. I We just heard the section about uh, New Orleans and uh, the dream that you had about me being in New Orleans in the middle of the funeral parade. And this is a, like happened uh, like, tw- uh, God, 18 years ago now or something like that. And um, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I know you have, late 90s, I'm guessing. I know you have a very sharp memory, and so I'm hoping you can uh, tell me what you remember of that dream that you had about me and, and if I uh, misrepresented it or, or took anything different from it than, than you remember. Oh, entirely. Uh, <laughs> no, it, actually, it wasn't just one dream. Like, I think that in, in the book, it's referenced as one dream. Yeah. Is that correct? That's what I thought. Yeah, because I remember it was actually like a, it was like actually three dreams. It was like a serial dream, which, so far as I know, is the only time as I can remember. It's the only time it's ever happened in my life. I actually oh. had three like three chunks of dream that were all kind of part of the same dream. We were in uh, an English garden, and you had been killed, uh, and you were sitting there, and you're throwing like a, a stick or a ball or something for some dog. It was like <laughs> it was like. Now, I hope you remember this. And it was like, it was midday and I, I walked out of this kind of like emerald green garden and you were sitting there and your, your hair was kind of standing up on end on one side. Just kind of remember like noticing that is like you slept weird on it. And I just kind of sat down in front of you and I realized that you were dead, that something had happened to you. And I was seeing you in the afterlife now. And, uh, and you just looked at me and the first thing you said was, I haven't been able to get my hair laid down since I died. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was so funny. Like that was your concern. Like, ah, shit. You know, when you die, like something about your hair, it's weird, it's kind of sticks up on the side. And I thought, like, ah, yeah, well, that's a unique perspective. Yes, you would know because he's dead. Um, what's, what, what, like, what's your memory of, of the dream? Uh, just that I was, you know, playing guitar in my parents' living room and thinking about writing an opera or whatever you call it. And then the the very first line that I came up with was, "When I die, they won't even bury me." And then you call, right. you called at that moment and you're like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I, you know, like I think some people I would, I wouldn't have said this to, but I was, I knew you would understand like the creative process. And I was like, I don't know. I just have this thing. And, and so like that whole process led me to eventually going to New Orleans. And then and it's a, been a big part of my life, obviously. And um, it, I, I don't know. It's just fascinating. Like, I don't know how much you believe in like, 
prophecies or, or like, you know, prophetic dreams or, or that sort of thing. But like, I, I don't, I, I personally believe in that stuff a lot, but I don't have a lot of personal experience with it. Like I've never had a, something like that happen where I dreamed something that became, you know, became true in yeah. some way. Like, has that happened to you other times? Um, three things that came true. No, not exactly. But I, I remember, uh, the very first time I, I kissed who was going to wind up being my, my girlfriend of uh, a long time <clears throat> that morning, I woke up and I had, saw a chalkboard in my head. And, and if there was this phrase written on the chalkboard that by the end of this day, you're going to kiss so-and-so. And it seemed like such an impossible thing. I felt like, no fucking way. That's not going to happen. <laughs> like, what, what, what was that? Like, no way. And then, you know, nine hours later, that's exactly what happened. Wow. So, but I don't know. Like, I think like that kind of thing is just sort of like, like to me, it's like the Beatles or something. Like how the fuck did those four people just all happen to meet? Like, how <laughs> does that happen? You know, it's just, you know, like <laughs> sometimes in, in life, you know, there's, there's a meteor strike that happens in this one planet that, you know, destroys all the dinosaurs. And it's place we have this whole other race. Like, you know, it's a it's a big world, and every once in a while, truly magical things can happen because you know, over time, the odds are actually in the favor that it will. Not, Something like that. Not to overstate the importance of that dream, but it was like the Beatles meeting and the asteroid killing the dinosaurs in one. Both of them. <laughs> it was that big of a dream. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not to overstate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've made this clear, but like, I don't think I ever had even a thought of New Orleans in my life. I mean, I knew it existed, but like, it was not something I considered at all. And I just remember when you first said that, I was just like, you know, because I had already talked talk to Megan about like possible ideas and she suggested something and I was just like, yeah, I don't know. And when you said that, I was like, New Orleans. Oh, huh. Interesting. You know, like that was the first wow, time. Wow, really? I, I didn't. I don't think I knew that that was like the, the actual beginning of that. I thought maybe moving to New Orleans was, was already like kind of like on the table through Megan or maybe no. even through you. No, yeah. No, wow. No, no, not remotely. I, I hadn't ever <laughs> wow, thought okay. of it. And so that led to me writing the opera. And then at the end of that process, I was like, Oh, I should go there. And then Lisa Ryan was driving a van there and I went with her, you know? Oh, right. And that all happened in the course of a year from beginning to end. Um, yeah, but I never, never thought of that place before. That's what, that's why, that's why that dream is so important to me because it's just one of those things that like, thank, thank God you called and thank God you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> or then again, you know, who knows what would have happened otherwise. blank the entirety of humankind's quest towards more efficient technology has been about reassembling the world from the outside in we saw a hummingbird and dreamed of a helicopter we saw the motion of matter in magical states 
and we charted it on the periodic table. Now we see a tiger, divided into smaller and smaller grids in which colored pixels can represent the pieces of a tiger. And those pieces can be transmitted onto a screen and look almost exactly like a tiger. When we were in that strip club a couple months ago, your sister had told me that every man she'd ever dated had been afraid of her, including the nice guy who had treated her right and who she perhaps uncourteously dumped in favor of a guy who seems to me and to you and everyone else like a total asshole. But this asshole is, at last, a guy who isn't afraid of her, she said. And that was worth more to her than the kindness and reciprocity of a nice man's love. I understand that. I've been on that side of it too. Being with someone who is afraid of you is like being followed by your own shadow, knowing that it could never surprise you or challenge you. It's cruel, but when you have the upper hand in a relationship, you can get complacent. So some of us end up looking for someone who is complacent with us, who treats us like we're his or her shadow. Why do we chase the creatures that are indifferent to us? Why do we adore the face that doesn't break? Why do we wrap ourselves up in masking tape on that living room stage like your sister did in that seaside lodge in a state of complete what-the-fuckness over someone who finally isn't afraid of us? I was afraid of you. Afraid that when you got up to go to the restroom, you'd never come back. Afraid that you'd never return my call. I told myself I deserved to feel this way because I've been on the other side of that. I've punished people who cared too much about me. I've laughed at their dramatic gestures. I've had nothing on the line. With you, I was the shadow. There was nowhere else I could have moved, nothing I could have done that would have changed the outcome. Shadows have no power. Regretting the actions that led to where we are now is like trying to reassemble a tiger from the outside in, hoping that it will still be a tiger. There is a breath and a spirit to real life that can never be captured in all the smaller and smaller divisions. That spirit is what we should be trying to capture. The particulars of the tiger are irrelevant. If you were to actually encounter a tiger out in the wild, really face a tiger, you would soon forget the exact placement of the stripes, the shape of its nose, the alignment of its whiskers, but you'd never forget the tiger. You'd remember all the unquantifiable bits. Your hair would stand on end and you'd know that what was happening was real. Maybe that's why we're looking for someone we're afraid of because our fear tells us that we are real, whereas complacency makes us feel like we are disappearing. Of course, there's always the possibility that the tiger might devour us and then we'll become just another piece of the tiger. Yours in reality, Nick. Chapter 13 I'm sitting in a white plastic chair warming my hands on a cup of Inca and my face in the last rays of the setting sun with some time to myself before the group reassembles in the hall I'm once again listening to Graceland 
first dozen times I heard the title song, I didn't know what Paul Simon meant when he referred to the Mississippi Delta shining like a national guitar. It just seemed like a bland lyric about some metaphorical guitar that represented the whole nation. I realized later that a national brand guitar is a guitar made out of metal that has big resonators on it so that it projects sound. A metal guitar shines in the spotlights the way a river does in the sunset. Paul Simon remythologized a place that had already been thoroughly mythologized. The song and the album are not really about Elvis, and yet they are about the world that Elvis helped bring about. Graceland, the actual place, cannot possibly stand up to the mythology. The idea that you're going to commune with Elvis in his own home is a very odd concept. Perhaps someday we'll see the same thing with Neverland Ranch. I've never understood the fetishizing of the particulars of a person who happened to create music. Does it help your understanding of the song Suspicious Minds to see all the mirrors on the stairway to the basement? When I went to Graceland, the most disingenuous part of the experience was that they kept the upstairs off limits under the illusion that some things needed to remain private. It seemed a little late for this man to retain his privacy, and for the $36 it took to get in, you'd think they would turn out every cupboard and give you a flashlight to inspect the foundation if you wanted to. At the same time, it did leave the contents of his bedroom to the imagination, which is probably the best place for it. Nothing that was actually up there would surpass our expectations. I enjoyed picturing Elvis himself upstairs, feeling under the weather, holding a towel over his head, while steaming water leached the toxins from his pores. The message was that Elvis would be back, or he never left. This has been Nick Jaina time. Today I read three chapters from my book, Get It While You Can. That's the name of the book. It's on Perfect Day Publishing, available online. All my musical accompaniment is by me, written and recorded by me. This theme music right here is by Richie Green. What you heard today is what I do around the world. Many nights of the year, not all. Sometimes I just have a snack. My book is available online along with tour dates at nickjana.com, N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A.